So just so you're aware of, of what is coming up. Uh, so like today is, is Palm Sunday and, and, uh, and, and it's, you know, it's the, it marks the beginning of Holy Week. That's, you know, we had the kids come up and, and, and do a performance for us, and that was really beautiful and wonderful. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an important part of, of Christian traditions. Um, and, it, and, and this year, we're going to be celebrating Holy Week. So uh, as, as you saw in the announcements there, Thursday, we're having a Monday Thursday service, which means what we're going to do is we're going to have several tables out here. We are going to reenact... Uh, the events that took place at the Last Supper. It's really, if you've been here before, we've done that. It's been several years since we've had a chance to do this, but it's a, it's a, it's a thing we all get to participate in. You're not going to just sit and watch somebody talk about it. We're going to talk about it, but we're going to act it out together. It's really cool. It can be very impactful. Uh, so that's going to be Thursday night. Friday night, we're having our Good Friday service. That's a night where we contemplate and remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, his death on the cross. And so that's uh, going to be a time of contemplative worship. We're going to be doing kind of an art thing together here. It's not going to be a painting or anything like that, but it'll be just kind of a worshipful art uh, uh, interactive uh, installation. And then... Um, Saturday, we're encouraging everybody. We're going to be posting prayers. Uh, we encourage you to pray and prepare your hearts for Sunday. Sunday morning at 6 a.m. at Pineapple Willie's, we're going to have our sunrise service, which is always an awesome time together. And then at 10 o'clock, and this is all weather permitting, at this point the weather looks good, uh, we'll have a courtyard service out here. Um, so bring your own lawn chair and, uh, or you know whatever you prefer to sit on, lawn chair. Is a lawn chair a thing anymore? Actually, as I think about it, camping chair, beach chairs, whatever, whatever sitting vehicle you want to use, uh, bring that and uh, we'll have a time of worship together, just celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. So that's what's coming up uh, this week. Um, but today, Palm Sunday, is the day where we remember what is called the triumphal entry. This is the day that Jesus... Uh, actually, is this, oh, this is still not... What? Yes, it is. All right, so I'm, I'm taking it off since it's not working. So I don't have it on? It's on. <laughs> what did we do with cartridges? You want me to turn it off and turn it back on? Aren't you guys glad you're here today? This is pretty exciting. Um, check, 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 check. You're not hearing anything on that, no? Hmm? No, I'll hold it. I'll hold it. I'm good. Thanks. I'll just walk around. I feel like a talk show host this way. I'm trying. I want you to know. It's going down, I know. Two out of five stars. These are, I literally, for 27 years, have had nightmares about stuff like this happening. So this is all just, I've lived this already before, uh, usually in my sleep. But this way, uh, we get we to experience it for real. Palm Sunday. 
We'll, we'll get ourselves back into this. Palm Sunday is the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem. It's called his triumphal entry, and it marks the beginning of this week that Jesus spent in Jerusalem before uh, he was arrested and executed. The earliest records that we have of this day being celebrated go back to the 4th century, but it was largely established as a regular observance and holiday in the Middle Ages. The timing with our study in the Gospel of Luke is just really fascinating because, as you know, we've been going through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and today just happens to land on the events of that day. That's because I'm such a brilliant planner, and and as you can see... No, I, I can't take credit for that. I didn't know that was going to happen, but it's pretty exciting and it's pretty cool that it did happen. So this is what we're going to be reading about today, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. If you've got a Bible, if you want to follow along, if you'll go to Luke chapter 19, please. Last week we read the parable uh, that Jesus told about a king who had left for a period of time, left his kingdom for a period of time, had uh, left others in charge of things that were valuable to him. And the rebuke that, that one of his servants received for not taking that purpose seriously in life. And Janelle did a great job last week just examining that text. And we were challenged to remember this important purpose that we have as representatives of the kingdom of God, of, of sharing this good news, of being part of the process of drawing people into this uh, return to God. And now today we're going to pick up the story where the events of Palm Sunday unfold. Again, as I've said, it's an event that we call the triumphal entry because Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem was as a triumphant king. And this spontaneous parade erupts when Jesus uh, comes to town. But man, it is such a complex uh, event, and it's pointing in so many different directions. It's honestly hard to keep your bearings as you're reading it and trying to piece together what's happening here. For instance, if, if you were to see a news story where uh, a guy gets on a horse in the middle of the night and rides through Lexington, Massachusetts, shouting, the British are coming, well, you know what he's pointing to, right? I mean, you know what he... Yeah, he's pointing back to Paul Revere's Midnight Ride. We would know what that... That's that's an event that happened hundreds of years before we were on the scene, and yet we're very familiar with it because it's embedded in our sense of cultural identity. It would be the same thing if a group of people jumped in a, in a boat and rowed across the Delaware with one guy standing on the prow. We'd think right away about, yeah, George Washington crossing the Delaware to do the surprise attack on the British at Trenton, uh, Trenton New Jersey. These events that happened a long time ago still communicate our cultural heritage. The, the, it's all part of the history that defines us as a country. Very significant events, very short-lived but significant events that, that we're immediately connected to. So it's important for us to know that everything that happens in the events when Jesus uh, enters into Jerusalem, is echoing back and contrasting with other events. And everything that transpires here is is meant to make some powerful statements, communicating about the nature of the kingdom of God and and God's activity in this world and his unexpected, his surprising methods that he uses to go about achieving his purposes. The central theme of Luke's gospel 
and it, you know his account of of Jesus's entrance, especially into the into Jerusalem is that of peace. Peace has been a recurring theme for Luke all the way through, starting all the way back in chapter 1 when Zechariah, uh, you know, when John the Baptist is born, Zechariah, his father, bursts into song, and he sings largely about this king who's come, this Messiah who's going to guide us into the path of peace. Uh, when Simeon the prophet sees Jesus, he speaks of the peace, the coming peace in this. When the angels appear to the shepherds out in the fields, they sing peace on earth, goodwill towards men. We see in the account of Jesus' ministry all through, he's speaking peace to the storms. He's, he's bringing peace to the demon-possessed. He's, he's, he's reconciling and providing peace for the outcasts. And now here, as we enter the final act, Peace takes center stage and serves as a contrast and a challenge for all of us who want to follow this king of peace, who want to follow his ways. That's what we're going to be considering today. So if you're there in Luke chapter 19, we're going to read about this king who brings peace, picking up where we left off, starting with verse 28. After telling this story, the one that we read about last week, Jesus went on towards Jerusalem walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you'll see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So, (laughs) yeah, that works. So, They went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked him, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus. We don't have any following action after that. So I don't know if they had to beat the guy up or what. But either way, uh, verse 35, so they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. I know what you're thinking. Where are the palm branches uh, in this, Rob? Uh, Supposedly this is Palm Sunday Well, interestingly enough, Luke leaves that detail out of his account, but it is found in John's Gospel, John 12, and that's where we read a large crowd of Passover visitors, those the Galileans who were with him, took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. So there we do have the palm branches mentioned in here. And as I said, there is a lot going on here that we're going to need to look at. Jesus and all the pilgrims that he's been traveling with, and we started this section back in chapter 9. So we've been going for, you know, 10 chapters here on this, what's called Luke's travel narrative, where we follow he and these pilgrims into Jerusalem. They've taken the final road from Jericho to Jerusalem, stopping at this small village of Bethpage, Bethpage, Bethany. And there he instructs his disciples to go find a young donkey uh, described as a colt, and here's there's some there's there's dual theories about this event, how this went down. Um, some believe that Jesus had prearranged uh, this for this cult to be there on some prior visit. We know that Jesus had been to Bethany a lot. That's where Lazarus and his sisters lived. Uh, so there's some who say this was prearranged uh, by Jesus, but others believe that this is a supernatural knowledge that Jesus had 
about a cult being there and that God moved on the owners of the cult to allow his usage of it. Either way, I mean, it doesn't state it specifically, so either way works for me. The most important thing that we're supposed to catch from this is that is that Jesus himself is orchestrating all of these events. Nothing here is randomly happening. Jesus is orchestrating this, and it's to make a point. As I said earlier, just like our minds would go to Paul Revere if we saw a person riding through the streets on a horse shouting, the British are coming, the people seeing the events of this day would have recognized their significance on a cultural level. What they're witnessing here is hearkening back to something for them. To start with, Jesus is on a donkey, uh, you know, as we see. So we think, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, you know, why is Jesus riding into town on a donkey, an important detail in the story? Jesus' choice of ride is significant both historically and prophetically for Israel. Historically, David and Solomon, both on separate occasions, rode into Jerusalem riding on donkeys as a symbol, as a, as a demonstration of their intent, their peaceful intentions. For David, it was after his son had rebelled, he came back into Jerusalem de- demonstrating he was there to bring peace. For Solomon, he was being ordained as king, and he was trying to show this is going to be a peaceful transition of what we're doing here. But it also harkens back to an ancient prophecy about the coming Messiah. In fact, the other Gospels actually will quote this account. We need to read it here just real quickly. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, here's what it says. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. This is a prophecy written somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, four to five hundred years prior. Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, yet he's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And then the significance of that, verse 10, I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. Again, this theme of peace. This was a well-known prophecy, and Jesus is fulfilling it that morning. But it seems like this this young colt, this donkey, was much more than just symbolic of Jesus' humility, because when we couple it with that prophecy, uh, it's a symbol to all that saw Jesus coming in Jerusalem that God's arriving, God's king is arriving and bringing peace with him. And it's telling us then loudly and clearly that God's kingdom triumphs through peaceful humility. Sorry for that popping on there. I don't know how to keep that from happening. The, the prophet Jer- Jer- uh, Zechariah pointed to this, this moment. And he declared the one riding that donkey had been sent to offer the world another way, another path to victory, an avenue of true peace. And this other way that he was bringing in with him, this other way that he was pointing to, it flew in the face of the chosen values and methods of the powers of this world at that time. It still does fly in the face of that. Because Jesus is not a Messiah of militant power, but of humility and service. We've seen over and over again that that people of Jesus' day, they were expecting something different when it came to Messiah. We've talked about that. They were looking for a Messiah who was going to rise up as, as a warrior. 
They were looking for someone who was going to go in and confront the Romans and, and attack them, rise up against them. They were looking for someone who's going to storm the capital and overthrow the corrupt priesthood in there and set things straight. And I'm telling you, when they saw Jesus riding into town with people waving palm branches and singing, they likely recognized it as a recreation of an event that happened in their country 200 years prior to that. What event would that be, Rob? I'm glad you asked. And listen, I don't want to bog you down, but if you don't mind, I'd like to give just a short history lesson here so we can understand what's happening uh, in, in this there is about 400 years that transpire between what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, the letters of the New Testament. And in that period of time, a lot of events unfolded on a historical level. For one thing, Alexander the Great uh, conquered the Mediterranean world at, at that time. And, and after his death, the splinters of his former empire wrestled for control of all of the territories. And one of the groups in the Near East were the Seleucids. And under the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, that region that included Israel came under his control, and he was determined to Hellenize the Jewish people. What that means is he wanted to make the Jewish people act like they were part of Greek culture. He all but made it illegal to be Jewish. Judaism was was banned. He actually had the audacity, at least according to Josephus, to go to Jerusalem and into the temple and sacrifice a pig on the altar, which was a complete defilement of the holy place. Most people in that time, in that region, found that it was just going to be easier to, to go along with it especially in the wealthy classes. They had a lot to lose, and they were doing pretty well under this Hellenistic system. So they acquiesced, and it seemed as though the the heritage of Israel was dying, except for one family of priests, the Maccabees. They sparked a resistance against the Seleucids, and after seven years of guerrilla warfare, the Maccabees defeated the Seleucids, and they liberated Jerusalem. And, And that event that took place after they liberated the the holy city, was written about, it was recorded in one of the Jewish historical writings, 1 Maccabees, and I just want to read to you real quick the account of Simon Maccabees finally finally entering Jerusalem after their victory. It says, On the 23rd day of the second month in the year 171, there was a great celebration in the city because this terrible threat to the security of Israel had come to an end. Simon and his men entered the fort, singing hymns of praise and thanksgiving while carrying palm branches and playing harps, cymbals, and lyres. Simon issued a decree that the day should be joyfully celebrated every year. And that, of course, is the origin of the Jewish holiday Hanukkah. So I want you to imagine. Remember, like we talked about, how quickly we remembered Paul Revere. So imagine you're watching Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And you're someone who's waiting for another Maccabean revolt, this time against the the Romans. And you see somebody coming in and everybody's singing songs and praising and waving palm branches around. What are you thinking? What do you see happening in front of you right at that moment? You see peace, you see joy, but what are you expecting when you have in your history the violent Maccabean revolt. You think you're seeing the new uprising. Here it comes. It's about to happen. Woohoo! We did it! 
Jesus is intentionally recreating that event, but with major differences. He's not bloody from battle. His hands have been used to heal and restore. He's not on a war horse. He's on a symbol of peace and safety. And I mean, Jesus' triumphal entry, when we really look at it and we contrast it with history, it's almost a parody of what had become the common practice among kings and conquerors in the ancient world. We've got records of generals and emperors from the Greek and early Roman periods when they would return to city after a victorious battle. They would form a parade and the people of the city would come out to greet them and they would wave palm branches as well because that was an ancient symbol of victory. And they'd shout praise for the king who's coming back after defeating all of his enemies. Except those generals and those kings rode war horses and chariots of iron. They were not on little peace donkeys when they came in. And something else. Here's something that I think we rarely think about. I know that I was guilty of not factoring in this very much. But there were actually two processions that entered Jerusalem at about the same time. Jesus was not the only one parading into Jerusalem at that time. Every year, the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate in this case, would ride up to Jerusalem from his coastal palace in the west. And the purpose was to be there to to represent Rome when Passover caused the city to swell to big numbers. I mean, their population doubled, tripled during the Passover. Uh, And so... Pilate would come up every year and he would parade into the city with the sound of trumpets and drums. He'd have soldiers with spears and banners making sure that everybody remembered that Rome is still in charge of this place. I mean, it would have been a spectacle of military might on the west side of the city. And on the east side of the city, through the eastern gate, Jesus parades in on a little donkey And his followers throw their raggedy coats on the ground and they're all singing songs. It is a huge contrast here. And yet, it was this way of peaceful humility that came out the victor on the other side of it. It came out victorious then. It comes out victorious now. It will come out victorious in the days to come forevermore. We really have to think about this. Jesus' triumphal entry counters both the Jewish and Gentile assumptions about the ways of a kingdom. Jesus incarnated the good news with humility of service that was represented even in the way that Jesus as king entered the city. With actions and symbols, he's representing the heart of God towards humanity with care for those around him, not militant demands for conformity. Which means our declaration of Jesus as Lord and King must follow this same path of peaceful humility. This is the road we are called to as his followers. Beyond that, the message of Jesus' triumphal entry is that there is a kingdom that is greater than Rome. It's greater than nationalistic Israel, where God is going to provide for all of us, where all of his beloved humanity can find refuge. No one's too insignificant, and healing and redemption is provided for everyone who will receive it. 
So I say forget the kings and the rulers of this world with their pomp and their power and their pride. I will take King Jesus any day. I will follow him wherever he goes. And as I said, you know, there's a lot being symbolized in this event. That just covers a few of the things. You could take, we could take several weeks just drilling down into all of the significant things that are happening here. But this is something, you know, what we were just covering there, this is something that doesn't go unnoticed by the religious leaders. They're watching this. They're watching this procession. They're recognizing right away the connections with the Maccabees. And they're probably looking up at the Roman soldiers who are encircling them as well, who suddenly kind of have their hands on their swords, you know, taking the flipping the safety off and talking in their microphones as the parade's going by. And so they, they say to Jesus in verse 39, but some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your follower for, followers for saying things like that. And remember, they're saying, blessings on the king who comes in. That's a direct, it's a direct uh, confrontation with, with Caesar at that point. And he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. So rocks and stones beginning to applaud, that's quite a picture. I mean, it's, it sounds more like from a, you know, Animaniacs cartoon, but it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful imagery there. The rocks are going to cry out. If I tell them to stop, and what does that mean? What is he saying there? Usually it's postulated that he's saying to them that if humans fall short in, in their praise of what God's doing, then God will animate the inanimate to, to bring glory to him. That's normally how we would interpret that. But there's another possibility in this as well. Rocks and stones were always considered symbols of longevity in the ancient world and usually associated with what was divine and eternal. So, I mean, Jesus may be saying that he's going to get praise from rocks if humans let him down. I mean, that's a possibility. But it's also possible that he's saying something akin to what we would say that something's written in stone. What do we mean when we say something's written in stone? What are we saying? It's forever. This This is a fixed kind of thing. And I think it's very likely that what Jesus is doing here is making a declaration that the triumph of God's kingdom is certain and inevitable. Pharisees were worried about the religious authorities in Jerusalem considering it a heresy as well as the Roman government thinking that it was a threat. Jesus is dismissing both of those concerns as insignificant because the outcome of this drama has been predestined by God. There is no question about it. God and his love will win. But, you know, I mean, looking at it objectively, it didn't, you know, by the end of that week, it certainly didn't look like Christ was winning. I mean, arrest and beaten and crucified is hardly what anyone, it would hardly prompt anyone to say, well, that went well at, at the end of it. But that's the subversive way, this surprising and unexpected way that God's kingdom and his power of love works in this world. Reminding us that it just doesn't matter how things look. We look around at the world, and the world's a mess. Yes, it is a mess. Terrible things are happening. People are suffering. It is a, it's, it's a mess. But God's kingdom and his reign to set it all right in his love is irrefutably going to happen. It is irresistible in its power. Nothing is going to stop it. Nothing is going to keep God 
from achieving his intent of setting all things right. God will win. That's why this whole embattled mindset of our present-day church is so out of sync with the gospel. Because even if forces in the culture are arrayed to try and, and squelch our convictions or hinder the practice of our faith, it will not change the outcome of this story. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter what we do in that sense. God is going to win in this. Like Paul says in Romans 8, and this is the mindset we're supposed to have, not, you know, setting up our own armaments and our own battle in this whole thing. Paul says in Romans 8, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean defeat if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or are hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, he says, despite all these things. Because of the empty tomb at the end of this week, we have overwhelming victory through Christ who loved us unto death. The triumph of God's loving reign is inevitable. So let's trust in that. Let's trust in that. Let's not take up the world's attitudes and the world's activities as a means of trying to protect ourselves. Let's trust in the inevitable, powerful, overwhelming victory of God's love in this world and follow his ways of love and humility. Now, in our text, everybody is singing, everybody's stoked, everybody's rejoicing, except as we'll see for Jesus, verse 41. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and he saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way of peace. But now it's too late. And peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you didn't recognize it when God visited you. So, Here, Jesus is predicting the events of 70 AD, where the Roman general Titus laid siege to Jerusalem and he destroyed it, crushing the Jewish rebellion and revolt against the Roman Empire. Israel's king had come, showing them the way of peace, showing them the way of God's kingdom, but they rejected it. They couldn't see it because they had their own ideas about achieving victory And it resulted in their destruction. It's a somber reminder at the end of this event that choosing the world's methods and values inevitably will lead to ruin, as we see, even for God's people, if we're not paying attention. And note, there's nothing vindictive here. There's no gloating in this. Jesus isn't saying, well, you guys rejected me. You're going to get yours. N.T. Wright says, it is an essential part of Jesus' message of warning and judgment that it's uttered through sobs and tears. The terrible judgment that has been pronounced proceeds not from a stern and cold justice, but from a heart of love that wants the best for and from his people. The destruction of Jerusalem was not 
God's will or desire for Israel. It's the result of the path that they chose to take, rejecting what was offered by Christ. And even though the path of Jesus looked foolish and hopeless, I mean, even though it took him up Calvary and ultimately into a tomb, it was the only way through to life, to real life, to life reconciled with the God who created us. The way of sacrificial love, it's not the way of this broken world. And it seems counterintuitive, like a king riding into town on a donkey, like a throne being a cross made out of wood. And yet it is the way of eternal life. It's something so important for us as his church. Something so important for us as his church to remember. So this morning, on this Palm Sunday, let's commit our hearts to Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace and the King of our life. Let's commit our highest allegiance to him. Let's determine to follow his path of humility and, tr- and, and peace and trust in the inevitable glory that is to come so that we could echo like Paul's words. I, I count all these things as unworthy to be compared. All these sufferings are unworthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. In that way, we can be a light to a world that's covered up in darkness. In that way, we can represent the path that God put before us that leads to life because that's what he wants for us more than anything else is life. Let's take that life and let's live it. Right on? All right, very cool. Will you stand up with me, please? God, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word. And Lord, uh, despite all of the technical difficulties you struggle through on a day like this, your truth, your truth is not hindered by anything. And the glory that will be revealed in you is something we long for and we look for. So open our hearts and our minds to receive that, Father. Set our feet firmly on the path of peace. And help us to follow your commands, to be those blessed peacemakers in this world, to represent the hope of this gospel that you've planted in our hearts. I pray this for all of us who are here today. Guide us into this glorious truth as we celebrate today, as we celebrate through this week, the magnificent victory that you provide to us through sacrificial love. Help us to receive it. Help us to embody it. Help us to project that love into the world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
gonna cry in my place No, as long as I'm alive I'll glorify His holy name So praise His holy name As long as I'm alive I'll glorify His holy name So praise His holy name As long as I'm alive I'll glorify His holy name speak this blessing on each other before we uh, leave here today let's uh, keep our hearts tender and soft before the Lord through this week to see how he may lead us what he may speak to us how we may grow in him as we contemplate the amazing things that took place so long ago yet are so relevant to us right here today 21st century Americans have our world rocked by a risen savior and it's pretty glorious So let's speak this blessing today. May Christ be a light to illumine and guide you. Christ be a shield to overshadow you. Christ be under you. Christ be over you. Christ beside you, on your left and on your right, both in this world and the one to come. Go in peace, you children of God.